This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we're doing a mini-sode on the cognitive bias called the gambler's fallacy. The gambler's fallacy is a really interesting cognitive bias because it actually doesn't just apply to gambling, but it can affect all of us. In fact, it does affect many of us. The gambler's fallacy is essentially the belief that past random outcomes influence influence future random outcomes. So for example, when you're in a casino playing roulette, the belief that whatever the last spin of the wheel had, whatever color or number it landed on, is going to somehow influence or tie into the next roulette wheel spin. Or if we're flipping um, a coin multiple times in a row that it's like they're all in a series that influence each other rather than each flip of the coin being an independent random occurrence. The reality is is that with random occurrences like a coin toss or spinning the wheel, the probability for each outcome of each turn or spin is reset every time. It is completely random every time. And although we know that if you were to flip a coin a hundred times, you're going to get 50% of the time being heads, 50% of the time being tails, the series of coin tosses don't influence each other. They're, they're completely random. So the gambler's fallacy is when we think that they are, that if we've had five heads in a row, then we're probably going to have five tails in a row. And you can see why this would play a role in gambling because it can change the way that people make bets because they have this assumption that, well, there's been this many instances of this card coming up on the blackjack table, or there's been this many instances of me not winning at the slot machine. So it must mean that because the probability is is 50-50 that you win or you lose, it's got to shake out soon, right? Random chance has got to shake out soon. And that's not how random chance works. And that's not how that's not how casinos work. I think many of us know that. But because it is a fallacy, we believe that that's how the world works. The gambler's fallacy is oftentimes called the Monte Carlo fallacy or the fallacy of maturity of chances. Um, it's called the Monte Carlo fallacy because the like best example of the gambler's, gambler's fallacy actually happened in a Monte Carlo casino in like the 1930s. And there was this incident that happened where people were betting on, on roulette and the wheel fell on black 26 times in a row. And there's actually only a 1 in 66.6 million chance of that happening. So it was incredibly rare to have it be a consecutive hit on the same color that many times in a row. 
So then what happened was after that streak, people started betting against black because they thought, well, there's been such a long streak of black that it's going to go to red next. It's going to kind of like right itself by having a long streak of red. That is not how we get 50-50 probability when we have, you know, two choices, red and black. The amount of data that you would need to eventually get to that kind of 50-50 shakeout is much, much, much longer. And it doesn't happen in these kind of small micro sequences. So people were betting against black over and over and over again because they were like, there's been so much black. It has to be red next. It has to be red next. And people lost a ton of money. And so that is like the epitome of examples of the gambler fallacy. And that's why they sometimes call it the Monte Carlo fallacy. A kind of subset of the gambler's fallacy is something called the hot hand fallacy, which is a belief that a successful streak will continue. So like if, you know, a basketball player is on a hot streak of scoring points, people are more likely to believe that they will continue that streak. So it's kind of like on the other side of the gambler's fallacy, but still this idea that random events have influence over each other, particularly when they are happening in a sequence, like in a basketball game or in a game of roulette. So how did we come to connect this experience of the Monte Carlo casino to psychology? The original kind of authors who began to associate the gambler's fallacy with a cognitive bias were two researchers named Amos Tversky and Keneal Kenneman, and they did research in the 70s to kind of look at this bias and how it influences the way that people make judgments about the world. And they found that the gambler's fallacy is actually kind of a side effect or a fallout of something called the representativeness heuristic. Now, the representativeness heuristic is a bias where we as people tend to evaluate how likely something is to happen by how similar it is to something that has happened before or by comparing what we see to a prototype or a stereotype. So the representative heuristic is kind of uh, can play a role in like why people become superstitious because our brains will be like, well, last time my team won the Super Bowl, I wore this pair of underwear and this jersey and had this snack. So next time my team goes to the Super Bowl, I need to wear this underwear, this jersey, and have this type of snack because it's this belief that it's more likely to happen if it's similar to how it happened before. Uh, This also plays a role in how stereotyping works. So for example, if if we are people who believe that um, a person of color is more likely to be the suspect in a crime because we're comparing that person of color to stereotypes of like black men or or people of color in general, that would be a way that the representative heuristic um, plays a role. Or if you've ever like passed someone on the street and maybe see someone in dirty clothing making this assumption, oh, they must be like unhoused or unemployed because they're wearing clothes that are similar to what I've seen in a group of people who are unhoused or unemployed. That is at its core what the representativeness heuristic can lead us to. The purpose of it is is supposed to be for our brains to very quickly sort things into categories because it makes it easier for us to process information if it's been kind of cut up into these categories. And that can be helpful at times. There are times when we need to immediately recognize that like that snake is poisonous because it's similar to other snakes that are poisonous or we need to know that 
this situation is dangerous because it's similar to other dangerous situations, right? We need that to be quick. We need our brain to like shortcut us to that. The downside is then when we're, you know, like not in dangerous situations or when we are not aware that this heuristic happens, then we tend to like lock ourselves into these assumptions about people or situations based on how similar they are to things or people we've encountered before. Uh, this heuristic plays into gambler's fallacy because we are likely to believe that a short run of random occurrences represents the longer string of probability. So the roulette wheel falling on black 26 times in a row represents the longer string of probability for the roulette wheel. So we're kind of taking, okay, what has happened this time is going to help us predict what will happen in the future. You, if you know anyone who like consistently gambles or are someone who consistently gambles, you might have some of those like things that hopefully for you predict or for that person predict that they're going to win, right? Like it might be like uh, at certain times of the day, I go to the poker table because I'm more likely to win at those times. Um, or I have to put a certain number of coins into the slot machine before I win uh, because in the past it's happened this way. Or I believe that, you know, I've had so many losses that there has to be a win next for chance to kind of equal itself out. Tversky and Kahneman did several studies to represent or understand the representativeness heuristic, which then tied into their work on the gambler's fallacy. And two of their main studies were one that had to do with predicting base rates for uh, graduate students in the U.S., and the other one was uh, called the taxi cab problem. Now, I'm not going to talk about the taxi cab problem because it's kind of confusing. And it's a lot of math. And basically what it was is they just had people predict, like based on a little vignette about two cab companies in the city, which cab company was more likely to be at fault if there's a hit and run at night and a witness is like presenting the information. And they just did a bunch of math and it's really confusing, <laughs> not not very psychological. Um, but if you look on the Wikipedia page for them, you can see the taxi cab problem if you're interested in the math. The other one was um, was about predicting graduate student uh, enrollment. And they took their participants and they divide them up into three groups. And in the first group, they just told them, please estimate um, how many students are enrolled in each of these nine fields. So think about all the graduate students in the U.S. How many do you think are in each of these nine fields? And included things like computer science, humanities, law, medicine, et cetera, et cetera. The second group was given a short vignette about a, a young man named Tom W. And after reading or hearing the vignette about him, they were then supposed to predict or rank the areas of specialization in terms of how similar they thought Tom was to a prototypical or stereotypical student of each area. So compared to a, like a law student, a stereotypical law student or student in medical school, where do you think that Tom would fall? And the um, vignette or like story about Tom, personality sketch about Tom, was that he was like very mechanical, he likes order, doesn't have a lot of creativity, uh, and doesn't like spending time with people. So that was kind of the information that they were given. Then the third group were given the same information about Tom, but they were told that the information about Tom was based on 
um, testing done by a psychologist and then asked to rank as well. So they kind of like boosted the importance of this information about Tom by saying this is from psychological tests instead of just like a, a summary of who he was. What they concluded was that people were able to use the description of Tom and connect him with his most likely field, which was, I believe, computer science, um, versus putting him, ranking him in a category like humanities or social work. Whereas the people that were in the group that were just asked to estimate how much, how many graduate students are in each field, they overestimated um, what the base rate is for those groups. So in a way, they demonstrated the representative heuristic, how it can be helpful by having this kind of prototype of someone, you can kind of match them to what we think they might be likely to do, right? Tom was a prototype of like a computer science guy, doesn't like to be around people, like sci-fi, not great with writing, not very creative. So it makes sense that people didn't rank him as being like a humanities student or ranking him highly as being a humanities student. They ranked him much more higher in terms of sciences, engineering, and computer science. So the representative heuristic can be helpful in that way. And that's how Tversky and Kahneman uh, demonstrated it. But like we've talked about, the reverse side of it is that they can lock you into this assumption. And in real life, right, Tom might be someone who actually is very interested in social work. Um, But from this like very small personality sketch, it seems like someone who would be only interested in computer science or engineering. So you know what Gamler's fallacy is, you know where the research originated from, what do we do about it next? (laughs) Well, first we need to understand the consequences of the Gamler's fallacy. The kind of overall consequence of it is that it can lead people to believe that chance is a fair process that will correct itself, right? So this idea that things need to come out to 50-50 or things kind of equal out if you just give them enough chance. This is, and this is why it's often called gambler's fallacy, is this kind of belief can really fuel gambling behavior because people can say to themselves, oh, I'll just keep gambling until chance writes itself, right? If I just do it one more time, just give it one more opportunity for that probability to shake out, then I'll win or I'll at least like maybe recover my winnings. This can also lead to people making volatile bets in the stock market. Um, so thinking like, because this this particular stock or trade has been trending downward, I'm going to bet on it continuing to trade downward without taking into consideration maybe like the other information around it. Um, it can also contribute to a flight, uh, a fear of flying. If you've ever heard someone say, you know, I've taken so many flights and they've never crashed, I must be due for a crash soon. That is the idea that like every flight that you ever take is somehow connected to each other and they influence each other so that if you've had so many successful flights, you must have to have a bad flight or a crashed flight coming up soon. And the gambler's fallacy can also lead to errors in interpreting interpreting statistics. And in fact, um, Tversky and Kahneman actually wrote a paper which I've cited in my sources page um, about how this fallacy or this, especially the representativeness heuristic plays a role in people misinterpreting the results or outcomes of their studies and their statistical tests. At first glance, we may think that, well, we just need to teach people about randomness and what it means, and that will make the gambler's fallacy go away. 
people have done studies on that and that has not worked. They, they will get, they'll do studies where they'll give one group this like training on or psychoeducation on this is how randomness works. This is what, you know, random error is. And the, they'll take a control group that didn't get that information and they'll have both groups watch someone like shuffle a deck of cards and then have them predict, you know, what card's going to come up next. Both groups tend to perform equally poorly in terms of their guesses, um, even the group that had the training on randomness. So just understanding how random error works doesn't seem to help um, eliminate the gambler's fallacy or at least reduce its kind of like hold on our thinking. What does seem to be more successful from from studies that, that have worked on this is rather than just teaching people about randomness, training people to view each outcome as the beginning of a series rather than a continuation of it. So looking at every coin toss as the first in the series rather than, you know, if you've done 10 coin tosses, this is number 10 in the series. If you can train people to see that each random outcome is like its own event, then people are less likely to make the error of thinking, well, it must be influenced by the past. If you were in that Monte Carlo casino in 1930, 1939 or whatever, and you saw it land on black 25 times and they go to spin the wheel again, you would want to bet as if it was the first time you've seen this wheel, not as if you know about this 25 other times that it's landed on black, because that is how probability works. It resets for every random outcome. Probability is not tied to what has happened before. Um, and, and kind of extrapolating that, being able to be very careful in, discer in discerning what are dependent and independent types of events. So independent events are things like, you know, coin toss, anything in a casino is an independent event, like every slot pull is independent from the previous slot pull. You know, every roulette spin is is independent from the previous one. Even things like sports games, especially, you know, if we tie it into gambling, like sports betting, you, you really need to discern that those are independent events. And just because one week a team did well does not mean that it's going to predict that the team does well the next week. Now, that one's a little murkier because, you know, there are things like how good is the team? You know, how much training do they have? What players do they have? But, you know, random events like someone breaking their leg can happen in between games. So it's not a guarantee that just because someone had a good game last week means they're going to have the same type of good game the next week. Or, you know, vice versa, someone had a good game. So it means they're going to have a bad game, right? They're, they're independent events. Dependent events are things like if you run a red light and then get into a car crash right after because you ran the red light, those are dependent upon each other, right? That car crash would not have happened if you hadn't run the red light. So we can assume that the event or behavior of running a red light increases the probability of a car crash happening. This can be really tricky, you know, because it's really easy to, it's really easy for our brains to make connections between things that are not related. Like if, if you've ever had food poisoning or, you know, just like gotten sick after eating something, especially if you like you eat out, it's really easy for our brains to be like, oh, because I ate that, that means I got sick. Therefore, I'll never eat that again because it caused my sickness. But unless, you know, like you were able to go to the doctor or know for sure that that food had bacteria in it or, you know, had something in it that can make you sick, then it's still, it's still technically like an independent event. We haven't been able to causally connect them. So it's really hard to determine if something is 
dependent, it's more likely that things are independent of each other, particularly the longer time there is between the events, right? If it's like, if I wear my favorite jersey on Friday, then my team on Sunday will win the game. There's absolutely zero way those things are dependent upon each other, especially when those many days are are in between the events. And then lastly, the kind of final hack for getting rid of gambler's fallacy is getting older. (laughs) Aging seems to have some impact on our brain in terms of gambler's fallacy and the representativeness heuristic. We're less likely to engage in the fallacy as we get older. So if you'd like to (laughs) just wait it out, your gambler's fallacy might go away. Um, But that might mean why it's more important to teach young people about like the independence of events and do kind of those that training of each thing needs to be its own series rather than a continuation because as we get older it it doesn't influence us as much um and you know maybe you can if you're older listening to this you can reflect back on your like early adolescence early adulthood and maybe you believed in the gambler's fallacy a little bit more that that heuristic was more salient for you so that is all i have to say about the gambler's fallacy i think it's a very interesting cognitive bias. And I think sometimes because of its name, it's easy to be like, I don't have that. I don't do that. But we all do it. We all, if you've ever had a superstition or ever had a thought of like, hmm, that happened, then this happened, they must be related, then you've done the gambler's fallacy. Um, So as always, I just want to say thank you for listening all the way to the end and I will see you in the next one. Bye-bye.